Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Can you say morning? There we go. Psalm 103. It's an awesome and powerful picture, just like the songs that we just ran through. And it points to a picture of the character and nature of God. You see, the scriptures are plentiful with attributes, and they define and and portray to us a holy God. Yet in this psalm that we're coming upon, the psalmist is pleading not so much with others, well, in addition to others, his soul, and how grateful he is for praising to the Lord. Do you remember what an ode is when you were in school? An ode? An ode is the most exalted kind of lyrical poem there is. And the text of an ode handles the dignified subject in a style that's very elevated. Ligon Duncan writes that this psalm contains such exacting and exalted language that it may be classified as an ode itself. Now, this particular psalm is not often the focus of a sermon. And those of you who know me well realize that that's the type of thing that I would be drawn to. So, here we are. In truth, it seems that many people have little remembrance of this particular psalm. And that's interesting. That's really interesting because the psalmist will begin by challenging himself and then others and the entire universe to recall the benefits and the blessings of God. Yet this work of praise demonstrates a model for our worship and has served as the spiritual springboard for many hymns. Hymn writers from many years ago promoted and panned glorifying hymns that were driven by this psalm. So for reference, let's just consider a couple. Isaac Watts, a name familiar to most, Oh, bless the Lord my soul, his mercies bear in mind. Forget not all his benefits, who is to thee so kind. Thou bless the Lord my soul, his grace, his love proclaim. Let all that is within me join to bless his holy name. You see how that fits? What about Henry Light? Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing. Praise him, praise him, praise the everlasting king. Praise him for his grace and favor to our fathers in distress. Praise him still the same forever, slow to chide and swift to bless. Praise him, praise him, glorious in his faithfulness. You know, most of the worship songs that we are singing today... In fact, one specifically is linked directly to Psalm 103. The fourth book of the Psalter, 103, is the last psalm attributed to David. And it's different from some of the others, perhaps because it urges us to call on our devotion to the Lord more than calling to exposition. But that's no excuse not to look into it. Dodd, a commentator, said, it may properly be said to describe the wonders of grace. And Stevenson described it as an outpouring of heaven taught gratitude. Heaven taught gratitude. Because no matter what mood in you are, when you pick up this particular psalm and start working through it, 
it woos you to worship. And it's often viewed as linked with Psalm 104, the two in parallel or right after one another, because it's a collection of admiring gratitude, which upon reading it should serve as a catalyst to our soul to praise Yahweh. Think about that. A a psalm of total praise. And we're going to see echoes of this language in the Old Testament into the New Covenant. Pure praise of each section, calling ourselves, calling others, and his eternal kingdom. In fact, when I was looking to title this particular message, I said, I called it, Do You Know the Benefits of God? But it can also be, Do You Share the Benefits of God? Do you tell others about his benefits? This summary, we worked through several psalms that were written in response to situations that the psalmist was experiencing or had experienced in life. 103 is kind of different, and it may not have been written in direct response do anything other than the outpouring of David's heart. Think about that. You sit down with pen, and what comes first is, bless the Lord, right? It's amazing when you think about it. Some have suggested that David might have written this psalm in response to his deliverance from an illness, Or maybe after perhaps he received some assurance that he was forgiven, resulting from his sins with Uriah and Bathsheba. But no one is really quite sure. Regardless of what prompted him, the poetic style that we read through and that triggers our emotion goes beyond our comprehension. Yet while this is such an emotional expression of faith for David himself... It also remains timeless for us and for all. All of his chosen. Who are the chosen? Yes. All of his chosen at any time can immerse ourselves in the text to rally our hearts to praise. So where are we going with this? The psalm is broken up, or we broke it up into three sections. The first being an internal call and list of benefits. The second being an external call and remembrance of blessings. And finally, a universal call for heaven and earth. So there is an internal call of voice to praise, him, you know, him, praise God from his heart and soul at the very beginning. And then there's an external call which brings the remembrance of the benefits that the Lord bestowed on various aspects of, from God's nature. And finally, there is a universal call of praise to heaven and earth. And as we're going to see It's important to note that these benefits are for those who fear the Lord, right? Fear the Lord. Who fears the Lord? Christians, right? And this is a personal call. So if you're here today and you're looking at the text, realize this is for you and me. If I was asked to summarize a single statement about Psalm 103, I would explain that this is a brief text highlights the benefits of God for those who fear him. So looking closely, there are multiple benefits. Some people actually went through and counted up as many as perhaps 30 in Psalm 103. Christians should automatically exude praise from their soul and extol the benefits of God while always faithfully seeking him. However, we all know life can be complicated. Amen? Amen. Life can be complicated. And our road through sanctification is certainly filled with suffering. If not now, then later. 
Perhaps today, right now, you may be thinking, I can't see the benefits of God in my life. Perhaps not today. However, we have a sure and we have a certain hope in our Lord which was demonstrated in the Old and New Covenants. And it's summarized in pure praise right here. You see, I hope and pray that we all see this and further pose the question to ourselves, do you really know the benefits of God? So let's start out. The first five verses of this immediately set the tone for the rest of this psalm. In just the first two verses, there is a threefold call to bless the Lord. Watch this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You see, the word bless is repeated three times. It's like David is trying to awaken his soul. For what reason? As it unfolds, it's simply to praise God. Our intrinsic praise is the recognition that the living God has no end and no beginning, that he is constant, dependable, sovereign, and holy beyond our imagination. It's about praising the Lord. You can imagine David talking to himself and pleading with his soul to bless the Lord with his deepest ability. It is a call that begs all the within his being to bless the holy name of the Lord. Yet even with that kind of an emphasis, what happens? What happens with that emphasis? We're prone to forget the benefits bestowed on his chosen people. It's certainly relevant for this study to see where this is documented in the Old Covenant. Would you agree? So let's turn over and look at Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 8, Eleven, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have All that you have is multiplied. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna so that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Do you see that the people were directed to remember the Lord at all times when they were full, when they were satisfied, when they lived in good houses and they had successful commerce? But also notice the word in verse 17. It says, beware. I think beware is kind of 
similar to the word therefore in the Bible. Everybody knows that saying, when you see therefore, therefore, what do you do? You see what it's there for. When you see beware, I want to pay attention to it. Beware that you say to your heart or your soul that my power and my might have got me this wealth. It was not their decisions or plans or drive. It's the Lord that provides. Because selfishly crafted ambition could be woefully painful. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote it well. He said, ambition is a gilded misery. Ambition is a secret poison. Ambition is a hidden plague. The engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of envy. Ambition is the original vice of angels and men. Ambition is the destroyer of virtue, the blinder of hearts. It is ambition that turns medicine into maladies and remedies into diseases. Very nearly the text could say woe to them if they start to think that it was their effort, drive, and wisdom which resulted in their circumstances. Can you see that back in the Old Testament? We who enjoyed plentiful food, a bunch of different life choices, retirement plans, and such must not forget as well. It's not obedience. It's blessing and benefit that are grace and mercy of the Lord. But rather than forget all his benefits, all of us who fear the Lord must know that we are forgiven. We're forgiven of our iniquity. We're forgiven of our diseases, healed of our diseases, redeemed, crowned, satisfied, and renewed. You've heard of benefits packages? I'm certain the one you have at work doesn't match. I'm certain. The list of these merciful benefits closely matches the walk of his chosen people, much like we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. After the threefold call in verses 1 and 2, the first five benefits are listed in order, and David precisely draws attention to these And he catalogs them in a particular order for himself, and it's true for all. The following cover the first two. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? See, first, God forgives all of our iniquities. There's a couple of things to consider here. The word all extols the sentiment of God's cleansing power. This is also in the new covenant where we were cleansed from all unrighteousness in 1 John. The other aspect of this statement is the scope, okay? The scope of our sin. All of our sins are forgiven. And later in verse 12 or 13, we will see this described in more detail. The next thing is that God heals all your diseases. You see, David is thankful for the healing of all his diseases. Certainly, certainly, some people may explain this in a manner to suggest that Christians should anticipate the healing of all physical diseases. But you know what? Christians get sick, and we die, and sometimes we are healed. Other passages in the Bible explain that God has a purpose in his sickness. The focus, therefore, is our spiritual condition. When we're healed of a physical malady, it is God who has the sovereign control. And you know what? We should be thankful because simply it's a blessing of God. Next in verse 4, we are redeemed from the pit, brought back from the precipice of death. It says, who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Do you remember the word crowned in the last song we sang? Likely since verses 3 and 4 are together, 
It's possible David may be referring to a recent illness where his health was restored. God is once again praiseworthy for how he preserves his people with mercy and grace. And farther we know that we are crowned with love and mercy, an extravagant, and that's an unyielding love that is provided without our response nor obligated because of our actions. Because the psalmist is declaring that the basis of this covenant relationship to be fully dependent on his love and mercy. Finally, we see the end of this section where we are satisfied with good. Satisfied with good. Do you wake up in the morning feeling satisfied with good? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's? This statement of absolute provision is also found in Psalm 104. In summation, David is delighted in our God who gives us all things, all things necessary for life. Let's think back on Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, 27. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even yours, excuse me, youths, Faint shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, the renewed imagery of the eagle in each book is not happenstance. Eagles are long in life and strong and naturally shed their feathers and replace them with new ones. But I'm suggesting that the eagle, or whichever eagle didn't wake up one day and said, hey, this plumage is looking kind of ragged. I better come up with something new. I suggest that it's because God made that refreshment, and you know it too. That's a gift to God. Likewise, God preserves our souls, which bolsters ours and David's ability to savor enjoyment of life itself and hope for the eternal. So to recap here, verses 1 and 2 demonstrate an internal call. 3 and 5 catalog the benefits of his chosen. And each identifies an internal call of praise, which is prompted by the remembrance of the benefits of God. Now, notice that there is an external call as well. The tone of this psalm gently shifts at the beginning of verse 6. The psalmist begins to slightly change his direction and turn it from an internal charge to an outward call or maybe even a proclamation, if you will. Not as personable, the text gathers a corporate tone like he's explaining to others what God has done for those who come to him. In other words, the text is meant to call the attention not just of the psalmist, but from others as well. It says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Verse 6 was a salvation promise given to his chosen people. 
Here, the psalmist reaches back into the history of Israel to highlight some of the greatest works of righteousness for his people. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You see, specifically in verses 7 and 8, David recalls how the Lord made known to Moses and his mercy of the people of Israel. Everybody knows the oppression of the Israelites and their eventual release. Certainly a righteous act for those captives, especially since they too had begun to forget, right? They began to forget the benefits and the blessings of God, and the same is for us now as well. So right after recalling some of the greatest acts of God's mercy, we might reasonably ask the question, who should praise God? Let's turn our attention back to Exodus, say 32. No, let's go to 34. Exodus 34, verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, therefore, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, notice this, the Lord, the Lord, repetitive, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. An awesome thing. Oops. An awesome thing. Consider verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, unless you imagine that Moses stepped in and came up with a savvy argument to sway God, God steps into this picture and declares that the reason he forgives is because he is merciful. He's gracious, slow to anger, and will not always chide. Mercy flows from his heart. It's not reactive to our actions or responsive to anything in us. He is just. He is just merciful. Let's continue in verses 10 and 11. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. God does not deal with us harshly or capriciously. We're not treated with the repayment of iniquity and injury. As a completely holy God, he is gracious. He is gracious to us and will not seek to repay us for our human failure. How amazing. If that were not enough, though, if that were not enough, if we stopped right there, wow, 
But the psalmist continues and celebrates four glorious declarations in the next four verses. As Pastor Tim mentioned last week, the word steadfast has an implied covenantal and permanent relationship, not of our own doing. In verse 11, we, his chosen, are treated with steadfast love, a declaration. Verse 12, transgressions, they are not held against us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east from the west, we cannot see from our best stellar observatories the existing detail of our known universe. Yet as high as the heavens are from the earth, our transgressions are removed. John Calvin wrote, he wonderfully blesses those he might justly destroy. Verse 13, the the Lord reveals compassion to his children. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Again, the familiar illustration of how a father, that father imagery is compassionate to his children. His children know his eternal sovereign and merciful nature, and we rightfully fear him and know, and we know his nature is compassionate. The structure of this verse is precise and characterizes those who fear the Lord as those who have decided to put our trust in him, right? And he's first in our lives. And it's the work of the Spirit to regenerate faith that reflects genuine desire to long for the love of God and his biblical truths, biblical benefits as well. For the men in this congregation, listen up here for a second, turn your clocks back about two months, that's slightly similar to Dr. Eric Mason encouraging believers to bleed what? Bleed Bible. Okay? Bleed Bible. Make it exude from your soul. Continuing in verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You see, like Adam, we are from dust, yet he knows us, and he knows how we started out, just like Adam. And we're going to return same way. We come and go just like flowers. If you're here today, do you presume that you will never die? Really, I hope not. I hope we know that there is a future kingdom, recognizing that the length of our lifespan is not our decision. We must be certain. We must be certain and know that the permanent, steadfast, covenantal love of God remains even when we are deceased. It is a special covenant relationship. Verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Some might think that because God offers mercy and grace when it is not merited, 
that he's somehow limited because he's obligated to respond. And obligated to respond to you personally. Not at all. His throne is established and his kingdom rules over all. It is, however, a merciful kingship without end. As David knew, there is a king far more mighty than David himself or any other king. He is king over all. So we have been through an internal call, David pleading with himself to bestow blessings upon the Lord. We have been through that slight shift where he is enumerating reasons and changing it almost to a proclamation. And now we come to the final call of praise in this psalm. 103 starts and moves in a progression that almost leads us to a crescendo at the end of this psalm. In fact, I think it does. Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, these verses are the capstone of the psalm. Internal call, external call, and a universal call. In a strange way, they're what I kind of thought of as the final four. Now, coming up with that sports analogy, I'm prone to do sometimes. However, well, Ligon Duncan says it better. He says that these are four doxologies of praise. And admittedly, yeah, that's better. The first is the universal call to the angels of heaven to join in the chorus of praise and blessing. And the second refers to all his hosts. What does that mean? All his hosts. David is not so much referring to the armies of Israel. Rather, he's calling on, if you can imagine this, he's calling on all heavenly creation. That's beyond what we can think about. But how do we know that? If you were to look back at Deuteronomy 4.19, you would see this. It says in verse 19, Beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. See how it's linked? Verse 22 is the third doxology. David addresses creation at large. Have you noticed that his people, we talked about that, his people or chosen people are not mentioned in this final verse? Take a look at it. They're not mentioned, okay? We're not mentioned there. Now, what's the reason? Looking around, people have different opinions, but I think the commentary by Plumer is correct. And he wrote that the words, all his works and all his places of his dominion cover everything, not just the chosen. It's a final, external, and exuberant call and a universal plea to unite all of creation to bless the Lord. Now, the ending doxology. As we started, 
we ended, and we go back to the beginning again. David addresses himself one more time. So it's as if he sits down, and as I said, he comes out and he says, bless the Lord. And when he gets done listing the internal, the external, and the universal call, he points it back at himself, and he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. From first to last, 103 is totally about praise. The blessing of God, the benefits, we are so prone to forget. Now, we all struggle, as I mentioned before, through life. Sanctification does bring time of challenge and tribulation. And it's during these times that we often grow the most on our walk. I know that is for certain in my life, and I've seen it with others. Sometimes, as David explains, we need to call on our deepest conviction to bless the Lord. So, if it's tough today, we'll pray with you and we'll call upon the deepest convictions you have. If it's joyful for you today, bless the Lord and call upon your deepest convictions. Have you lost your joy? Is it not on the top of your mind right now or compelled within your heart? Do these things not spring forth for you? If you're here today and you really have not known this glorious benefit package, talk to us. We want to know more how we can help you. But if you're feeling that, if you feel that today and you think about the benefits of being redeemed and crowned and renewed, if you're thinking about that, that's the Spirit working within you. Talk with us. We'd like to know more. To those of us who are sitting here feeling chosen, responsive, you know, um, remember these verses, these points when you're downcast. Praise the Lord and call blessings from your soul when things are going well. Think and feel how David called on his own heart. He starts out with bless, right? Bless, bless, bless. It's what we should do and proclaim to all of creation. So do you know the benefits of God? Moreover, do you share the benefits of God? It's what we should do every day. So as our worship team starts to come forward, it seems appropriate to end our sermon for the day by covering some of the benefits of God. Now, I'm encouraging you and have from the very beginning of this sermon to remember the benefits of being forgiven of our iniquity, our diseases healed, redeemed, and then unbelievably crowned, satisfied, and renewed. Started the beginning, and I mentioned that a number of hymns had been written about Psalm 103. So please consider this last story about one song in particular, which we will use to conclude our worship time today. In 1974, a boy was born in England. 
to a very dysfunctional family. It was a mess. And his father committed suicide when he was just seven. But he didn't know that his father had committed suicide until he was 10. Left a mark for sure. Scarred his life. His mother eventually remarried, and that was to a very, very abusive stepfather. And that stepfather eventually ended up in prison for abusing the family. Okay? Very hard life. Sometime later, though, this uh, younger guy converted to Christianity after he attended, get this, after he attended a mission service at a London football stadium. And he was encouraged by others that he knew in the Anglican church to lead worship when he was in his teens. He was an incredible, excuse me, an incredible musician, and in wanting to celebrate what Christ had done in his life, he started writing songs. Imagine that. And he came to Psalm 103, right? It says, bless the Lord. And he came to Psalm 103, and he wrote the song on 103, and we're going to end with that song. The lyrics begin with, can you imagine? Bless the Lord, O my soul. O oh, my soul, worship his holy name, sing like never before. O oh, my soul, I'll worship your holy name. Familiar to many, the man that wrote that song around 2013 was Matt Redman. And he wrote 10,000 Reasons, which is what closely parallels Psalm 103, and that's how we'll end this morning.